0: Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, whom you sent to come into this world to save sinners such as us. I pray, Father, at this time that you would be glorified and that those that hear would have hearts open to hear and receive that you are God who loves them. You are the God of Jacob, but you also the God of every individual believer that is. So we ask for your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's an honor to stand before you. It's also very scary. So I'll do my best. Lord willing, we'll get through it. Uh, My goal this evening is to magnify our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ in a way that encourages you as the people of God as we as a church and as a people of God uh, walk through difficult times together. And that's the way I I have this whole thing figured out tonight, but I hope it's God's way too. I'll begin with the text. I'll read Psalm 46, 1 through 11. This is not really an exhortation. It's more of an encouragement. And that's my heart tonight for this church. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams may glad As far as I can understand, the reference for this psalm could come from several places, but as I studied it, I saw that one uh, part of the history of Israel stands out the most to me, and that is when King uh, Ahaz of Assyria, I'm sorry, uh, King Sennacherib of Assyria uh, was attacking Judah as he was going through the nations, the cities and the towns and the states in Israel. He had his eye on Judah. And I'm going to give you a history. Hopefully, it's not as long as it is in other parts of the scripture, because this uh, story comes out in 2 Kings, it has two chapters. Uh, in 2 Chronicles, it has a chapter. And in Isaiah, it has two more. And the events that I'm about to relate to you um, probably happened around 700 B.C. Uh, at that time, Israel—I'm oh, Judah was in a very good place spiritually. Um, Hezekiah had come in, and he was a man who was after God's own heart, like David. He did what was right in the eyes of God. Uh, he followed after, and he um, kept well the commandments that Moses had given him. He tore down all of the high places in Judah, not just in Israel, all over the, the nation of Judea. Um, they were gone. There was no more praying in, in, on the hills, nor in every green tree. Uh, so he also destroyed the uh, snake that Moses had put on a pole that the people could look at and be healed from the fiery serpents that had bitten them. Uh, he also unified the people by telling them that where they would worship God was in Jerusalem. No more out in the, in the places where false worship and idolatry took place. There was no king like Hezekiah before him or after him in, in Jerusalem and in Judea. Um, he organized and set back all of the uh, things that were used for worship in, within the temple. Judah and Hezekiah prospered during this time, and they had the blessing of the Lord, and God had favor on them. But also during this time, there was the king of Assyria. King Sennacherib was overrunning every city and every town uh, in the Northern Kingdom, which was Israel, which is about to be totally destroyed and to be no more. All the fortified cities that were in his way, he overwhelmed them with his power and with his military uh, ability. Um, He would go into the cities and city-states and he would tell them he was going to defeat them and that their gods were useless. And it turned out to be true because they were gods that were made of wood and stone. And they ended up on the fire as Hezekiah and his representatives just laughed at the nations and the the towns that had turned away from God. The problem was that uh, Hezekiah refused to pay the tribute to Assyria that his father was paying. He had paid for quite some time. Hezekiah did not want the wealth of Jerusalem, of Judea, to be taken out. Uh, He wanted to stand firm. He wanted to get out from under the heavy hand of Assyria, of their king, uh, who they had to pay tribute to. But he refused. So ask a question. Why, if Judah was doing so well at this time spiritually and before God, and even as a people who were living as a people of God together, Why would God let this possible invasion threaten Jerusalem? And the reason for that goes back to the reign of Ahaz, Hezekiah's father. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He made one of his sons pass through the fire as a sacrifice. He made sacrifices on the high places, and all the hills, and all the green trees, and everywhere around that he had a little temple. He went into the temple of God, and he destroyed the utensils used and he caused idolatry to be uh, performed inside the temple. He caused Judah to follow the gods of the people of the land. And because of these, judgment fell on the people of God and upon Judah. You can find that in Second Kings. But this godly king who had done so much to help Judea to clean up all of the idolatry and get rid of idols, and to return the temple and the, the priests back to order, made a mistake. And sometimes as Christians, we make mistakes. And sometimes they're very costly. This one was very costly for them. He did not seek God, it was the first thing. Up until his time, he was very faithful to what he was commanded and what God had asked him to do but he did not want to fight Assyria and he tried to pay Assyria off with a tribute that he had first said he would not pay. And it was very costly. There was huge amounts of silver and gold that were demanded by King Sennacherib. And also it went so far as taking the gold off of the door of the temple, which not only um, reduced the glory of the temple, but it also reduced the glory of God before the people. So Sennacherib took the gold, and he took the silver, and he demanded that King Hezekiah and Jerusalem surrender. So Hezekiah began to fortify the city. He repaired the wall that was torn up a bit. He put another wall around it. He increased all of the arrows and the bows and all of the implements of war. And he and the people went into the city of Jerusalem. But they weren't trusting in God. They were trusting in the works of their hands of a wall that might not uh, withstand a siege, and so they were trusting in themselves. Sennacherib sent one of his leaders, a guy like a secretary of state, so to speak. It was called; his title was Rab Sheka. and he sent him to come in, and he was blaspheming, blaspheming the God of Judah. He was trying to scare the people by telling uh, his representatives, um, Hezekiah's representatives, that all the gods of all the cities that they had overtaken couldn't do anything to help them. So why is your God any different? Trying to scare them. But the king had already said, don't respond to them, don't listen to them, don't say anything. And the people were silent. Shortly after that, Um, Hezekiah contacted Isaiah the prophet and asked for something to help him. And Isaiah told him that Sennacherib would not come into the city of Jerusalem, that he would hear a rumor and he would turn the other way and would go back the way he came. And he would also be killed by the sword. Um, Sennacherib lived in um, Nineveh. Soon more messengers came from Sennacherib with demand letters. And this time, uh, Hezekiah was smart. He took the letters, he went into a quiet place where he could be still and he could listen and hear. He laid the papers open before God and sought after God and worshiped God. He let the, the, the temptation to succumb to the power of, of uh, Assyria aside and he kept his focus on God even when things didn't look very well at the moment. So the Lord spoke and told Hezekiah that Sennacherib would not even enter the city, he would not even shoot an arrow there. God speaks again, and he speaks regarding the king of Assyria who had become so uh, boastful against God that he was building himself up even greater than God in his own eyes and also the eyes of the people. But it was the sovereign God who led Sennacherib to do what he did. God knew everything he was going to do ahead of time And God spoke, I knew this, I allowed it, and it's not you who did it. God promised that he would put a hook in the king's um, nose and that he would put a a bit in his mouth and he would lead him out the way he came back in. So that night, coming to the end of this long history, the angel of the Lord went into the camp of the Assyrians and killed 185,000 warriors in one night. And when the people of Jerusalem came out the next morning, All they saw were bodies all over the place. Nobody survived. All the implements of war and all of the chariots and all the other um, debris around them was burning in the field. And that's what was promised. God had protected his people. God had also promised through Isaiah that Jerusalem would prosper again. And within three years, they were back to normal, eating their own crops that had grown in the ground. And most of all, the whole world saw the glory of God on display, and he alone, that he alone is God, and he was worshiped. So why do I tell you this story, this history, and how does it relate to the psalm? As I look around this room tonight, I think of those that have suffered many things, and I think of others that are not here tonight, that suffer at home, that we don't even know about. I think of those who cannot even be here but i think of them in this way that they are loved by the lord and they are loved by the people of grace we've all walked with the lord and with each other through many hard providences we've cried we've we've loved each other we've served each other and supported each other but each of us needs to be encouraged and to be lifted up i always notice each week the section that's in our Uh, order of service on Sunday morning where prayer is requested and it reflects what God is pleased to allow among us. It's sometimes difficult for me to pray through that because some of those requests reflect great depths of pain and suffering. And as I go farther down the page, I find statements of great joy where the people are celebrating over their young ones to be born or their children to be married. The first section of the psalm talks about chaos, talks about destruction. Verse 1 begins like this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This psalm begins with God and it ends with worshiping God. And the Hebrew term here for God is Elohim, the supreme God, the mighty one, the God of power and strength. The works that God does show us, show all, that He is creator, sustainer, and judge over all that exists. Elohim here is the same word used in Genesis 1.1 where it says, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. This is the God that has promised to always be with us and never forsake us. God himself is our refuge. It's not the things around us that we take refuge in, a nice home, a gated community, a great military. There are many such things that we we looked for and lean on, a large portfolio, a nation with a large ocean on both sides that we might be safe. God Himself is our refuge. We go to Him. All of the things that we go to refuge that are made out of man most of the time turn around and fail us and causes more heartache. But our God is not the refuge of those who hate Him. They have no claim on Him. In Hezekiah's story, he first considered help from other nations. Basically, it was Egypt. But he corrected his plan and went to the city of God, the place where God chose to reveal himself. It's a place where he went that was safe. So Hezekiah and all the people that went into the city were safe because God was there. And God had said he would protect them. And when it became necessary and it became uh, vital, when Hezekiah turned to God, he was immediately found. In that time of trouble. Our God is always near. If He wasn't available to us, what kind of God would He be? Just like the gods of the Israelites. In the history of Judea, God was always present to help them. He had proven Himself many, many times that He could be depended upon to protect His people in time of trouble or distress. In our lives, there are times when we do not have the sense of God's presence with us. But Jesus has promised his Holy Spirit that that he would send the Holy Spirit to us and that he would be with us. He shows his strength on the power on behalf of his people. John 14 says it this way. If you love me, keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever forever even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, but it neither sees him nor knows him, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Each of us has some foundation that we think is immovable, but when it crumbles and the chaos of the world becomes overwhelming, we lose our strength and we turn to someone, something that we can put between us and the problems God, who is sovereign over all creation, is our hiding place. And he himself, again, I say, is our strength. It is God that can do all things. When our, the chaos of the world overwhelms us, we don't have strength. We've got to get it from somewhere. And we have our God. He gives strength to the, faith, to the faint and to those that have no strength or might. He, he gives them strength. Excuse me. When God shows up in power or in judgment, the nature of created things changes. Earthquakes happen, smoke, fire, mountains melt, hailstones hailstones fall from heaven, and seas are troubled. What man could sustain such power if creation itself disintegrates when God shows up, when God makes himself known? What man could stand against such a God? and overcome. God's people, his church, have solid ground to stand on and will not fear. It doesn't mean that we ignore our problems or the trouble that we are facing, but it does say that we trust in our Lord, who has promised to be with us. We have and can only stand because of the imputed righteousness of our Savior. And we can stand before a Holy Father, God of eternity, God of all creation, by grace, and not stand in judgment or condemnation or be rejected in any way by our loving God. David touches on this in Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. When everything falls apart, the church has a solid place to stand, and that place is in our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. God Himself promised this in Isaiah, where he, it says, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone a tested stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. I didn't understand that last part, so I went to another translation. The NIV says it this way. Whoever believes will not act hastily. And it made a difference for me to understand that. There's a contrast between the first and second section of this psalm. The first is overpowering chaos and fear that is contrasted with peace, calm, and safety. Verse four and following. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Most cities in in ancient times had a a big river that would either guard them or supply them. But Jerusalem has no such river. There's only a gentle flowing stream that comes down from Shiloh, or some might say Shiloh. It comes from an outside source. It comes into the city through a a rock-cut aqueduct that went through 1,800 feet of mountain and it was cut from both ends by workers along a fissure that went through the mountain. It was used in preparation of a serious siege by Sennacherib. It supplied enough water for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, again, received water from a rock. Today, I found an article, not today, but in modern Israel, there was an article about water. I don't know how I got led to it, but it paints the same picture of an outside water source for the city of Jerusalem. And today you can see where water is piped in from the Mediterranean Sea, salt water. It is piped up a great distance and then it flows. And it flows back down through this aqueduct into the Sea of Galilee after it's cleaned up. And there's so much water there that Israel can sell water to its surrounding neighbors. And also they can purify enough water to raise the level of the Sea of Galilee about a meter every year, which is a lot of water. But the river, the text says there is a river. So I have to think, without a big flowing river, it's got to be something else. So therefore, it's a spiritual river. But where does it come from, and how does it make glad the city of God? Exodus 17 and 1 Corinthians 10 paint a picture of this river. Exodus 17 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and people will drink. And so Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. This paints another picture for us. We have Yahweh. And he, by standing on the rock, told Moses to strike it. And in doing so, he was identifying, Yahweh was identifying in some sense with the rock. So when Moses struck the rock, it's implied that he was striking Yahweh. Paul brings the other part of this, where he rightly identifies the rock with Jesus, and therefore Yahweh. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And if you have an NIV or King James, that word rock is capitalized. There's a debate whether, and I can't go into it now, whether the rock followed them the whole way or if there was some other way of explaining how they got water from the rock while they were in, in um, the desert. So Moses identified Yahweh as the rock. Throughout all the Psalms, got, not all the Psalms, but throughout many of the Psalms, God is identified as our rock, and Paul identifies Jesus as our rock, and therefore Yahweh. Christ, our rock, was surely struck by his death on the cross, and the spear that caused water and blood to flow from him when he was pierced. From him we receive living water that represents the presence of God, and that the Holy Spirit fills every area of our being taking care of every need that we have. This is how we are made glad and full of life. When our enemies, brothers and sisters, surround us, like Sennacherib's army, the people of God, the church, are safe, hidden with Christ in God. Verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God is present. His presence is constant, whether we see it or not. We as his church will not be moved, but will endure. And at the right time, um, in the fullness of time, as we heard this morning, God will help us. God's people can rely on the abundance of sufficient grace during trials that will see her through to the end. Darkness will not conquer the church. Our help comes from the Lord. We can rely on him. He made heaven and earth. He will not let our foot be moved. He who keeps us will neither slumber nor sleep. Alexander McLaren was an 18th century Scottish pastor, and he touched on this thought. With these words, He, that is God, will not come so quickly as to prevent us from feeling our need. He will not tarry so long as to make us sick with hope deferred, or so long as to let the enemy fulfill his purposes of destruction. The right time is always in God's time. God may shake the heavens and the earth, but we the church stand firm because of our savior. Nations rage against nations as we see going on in our own day all around the world, even against the United States. They will rise and fall. They were rage against the church. The same God that spoke creation into being, ex nihilo, can speak a word and the earth melts. The protector of his church remains the same. When God speaks in his wrath, the hearts of his enemies fail them because they fear, and and the fear grips them, and they have no strength to pursue their intentions. The earth becomes like wax for them. They have no foundation or support. The strongest and best trained armies are annihilated with a word. Remember what Rahab told the spies when Joshua sent them into the land to scout out the promised land. She told them, after they heard about all the victories that God had given Joshua and the people of of God, she said in Joshua 2.11, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man. Basically, she was saying, where were you guys? We were expecting you 40 years ago. We had heard so much, we've been living in fear. Speculation on my part. But Jesus also, with three words, calmed the wind and the waves of the storm, when his disciples were fearful that they would not live." Mark 4, peace, be still. And the waves were stopped, the wind was stopped, and the God of heaven spoke. The God of Jacob, the God of heaven's armies, is our refuge and our fortress. And here it's confirmed, the covenant that he made with our brothers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where he had promised them that he would be with them. And he was. The promise is also ours. Verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The writer of the Psalm is telling the people of God to look to the past where they can find numerous occasions where God had delivered them from some very serious uh, disastrous events. And most of those nations that came against, God, against uh, Jerusalem and Judah are now non-existent, though not all. So the people of Judah, uh, of Jerusalem, could look back immediately and see what God had done when he delivered them from the Assyrians. He said, look out into the field and see the fires on the chariots and all the arrows broken and the spears broken and the war has, has ceased. God speaks to his enemies here. He tells them, cease your aggressive actions. Be still and stop your, your hostility. He tells them to cease with the war. They cannot overcome the omnipotent, omnipotent God whose name is Lord Sabaoth, the leader of heaven's armies. If they'll stop just long enough to look at what's really going on, and see that it is God who is in control and not them. But there's another group of people that are being spoken to. It's us, the church. It's the people here at Grace and anywhere where the word of God is preached in truth. He speaks to us saying, stand still and look to him alone for our refuge and strength and help. One commentator says it this way, we are to be still, this does not mean to be silent, but to rest as we look to God to deliver us from the storm and from the shaking ground. The enemies of our God have time to resist and cause problems in the earth, but God has the final say regarding their evil activity. On the day of the Lord, they will totally and finally be defeated. So what's the right response to a God who is able to do all of these things, the God of heavenly armies, the God of Jacob, the God who leads us and brought His church into being? The last line says, next to the last line says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And finally for this part, Philippians 2, 9-11, therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." Jesus is our refuge and our strength. He is an ever-present help in time of trouble. He is Yahweh. He is I am, as we heard about in Sunday School this morning. We, the people of God, are brought near by the blood of our Savior, who has reconciled us by His death, burial, resurrection, and glorification. By God's grace and mercy, He has freely chosen to reconcile us to Himself, and has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of His marvelous light. By His grace, we've been delivered from death and given eternal life in christ jesus this is our god who can stand against him the world may crumble around us and our security in christ will only be revealed to a greater and greater degree every time it does as we see his power and protection for his people christians are under attack because we are not of this world and the world hates us just as it hated him let me ask you what has come into your life that is threatening you right now? Where is your security right now? Are you weakening under the attack? Our rock is the Christ, the Son of God who came into the world. He is is our Lord who has the words of eternal life and he gave them to us, from whom we receive the Holy Spirit that flows in abundance and fills us with the presence and the knowledge of God in our time of need. It makes us glad and full of life even when we face our enemies as they attack us. Church, Christ is, is with us. Christ is, If Christ is to be defeated, our enemies must defeat him first. We will not lose this battle, even if we lose our lives, our possessions, and everything that is dear to us. Do you struggle with fear God is with you. You shall not be moved. He is your help at the right time. Do you suffer from the effects of aging? God is with you. You shall not be moved. He will be your help at the right time. Are you burdened with personal suffering and pain, financial problems, troubled relationships? God is with you. You shall not be moved. He is your help at the right time. Our Father uses hard providences and issues in our life because he loves us and he wants to produce the image of Christ in us, the life of Christ in us. He does so that we rely on him and to teach us to trust in him alone. Let's pray. Lord, you are our rock, our fortress. You are strength, Lord, our salvation. To you, Lord, we turn. There is no other. There's no other power that can stand against you. There's no power that can overcome your church, your people. So I pray, Father, that your people here are encouraged even in the times that they suffer suffer distress and pain and loss and whatever else might come against us. But Father, you are with us. Your presence gives us courage. Your presence gives us life and joy. So we thank you and praise you for who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.